Hello, my name is Jason Reichel, and you're listening to Risk Management Brick by Brick. I'm fascinated with people who are helping build and maintain the physical world around us. On each episode of this podcast, we'll dive in with a risk manager, speak to them about how technology plays a role in this process. Hello, it's Jason Reichel, Brick by Brick. We're here at RIMS 2023 in Atlanta, Georgia, where we're going to be talking to modern risk managers all week long. We have a lot of great interviews set up for you. Let's get started. To continue our special at RIMS 2023, we're going to be talking to Brett Tucker. Brett Tucker is a technical manager of cyber risk management at the Software Institute at Carnegie Mellon University. In this role, Brett is responsible for developing and implementing risk management strategies to help organize and address cyber threats and vulnerabilities. Brett is a real mind on all things cyber, risk, and practicality of how to do it. Let's get started and talk about his frameworks. Brett, thank you for joining me on Brick by Brick. I'm really excited to talk to you. We are a technologist podcast. That's where I come from is in technology. And one of the areas where technology exists in this world of risk management is when we talk about cybersecurity and all of those elements that are related to that in risk management. And when my team said that we got you as a guest, I was really excited to talk to you. Why don't you give the audience a little bit about your background and where you come from? Sure. So thank you. It's a delight to be here. My name is Brett Tucker. I'm from Carnegie Mellon University. Going way back, I uh, started at University of Notre Dame. I have a degree in chemical engineering. And to pay my way through there, I was in the U.S. Navy. It's in the Navy Nuclear Posture Program for a number of years. Got out of that, went to Washington, D.C., and I worked in the nation's intelligence community for a while. Following that, I went to Westinghouse and I went up through the ranks there. I started out managing large programs, implementing building, engineering, instrumentation control systems. But eventually I ended up in corporate and I built an enterprise risk program. In doing that, that was my first big taste at how organizations, large organizations think about risk. And actually I liked the intro where you said, hey, I do technical and I do risk. I come from the other direction. I was risk and I was plunged into the technical world. Okay, yeah. So I was an engineer, but you get what I'm saying. Like I dove into the cyber piece. That's when Carnegie Mellon came and knocking. They said, hey, Brett, what we really want to do is we want to connect cyber executives more with the boardroom because we understand cyber executives, sometimes CISOs and CIOs, they struggle with the bits and bytes discussion. And how can we convey that better in a dollars and cents discussion? So that way, the executives that are in the organization that, that control resources can more convincingly hit the I believe button and have confidence in their cybersecurity stack. And they also recognize that they're getting a better return on risk investment. Right. So I believe what brought me here, or a serendipity amongst yeah. other things, yeah. but one of the better things is I drafted and crafted and published Octave Forte, which is a risk management framework that talks about how an organization may build an enterprise risk management program that supports the CISO so that they may communicate better with the boardroom. What are some of the pillars? So, well, first of all, let's take a step back. So sure. one of the things that I've done in my career previous to this is I popularized something called revenue operations, which is basically giving a voice to the operational folks within enterprise organizations who didn't have a seat at the table, right? And I find a lot of risk managers are also going through that where they're looked at as a cost center. They don't really aren't looked at as opportunist part of the organization. Same thing for the CISOs and everyone that you were just mentioning. So 
what are some of the core fundamentals that it takes in order to do that translation layer? And what's the responsibility of the individual to step up and the responsibility of the executives to become more educated? Or what's your approach? Is your approach that we have to up-level? Sure. Yeah, that's the, the broad question is responsibility and what are some of the core tenets of that? Yeah, the words that come to my mind as soon as you say that is pincer move. So I'm going to come with this two ways. First of all, there are three fundamental pillars that you should find in any good risk management program throughout an organization, right? Enterprise risk or CISO or whoever you're speaking to. One is it should have good governance. Two, it should have good risk appetite. And three, it should have good policy and procedure. And each of these things overlap almost like a Venn diagramming, right? Governance is people making risk-based decisions. Appetite is who has the authority to make risk-based decisions, what's the action orientation of that, and then the policy is telling the organization, hey, this is what we're going to do, and the procedure is this is how we're going to do it. Those are fundamental pillars that need to be in place for the organization to understand how we're going to understand this risk game. And the pincer move that I'm speaking to is the executive team needs to not only pump resources in the organization to buy down exposure or pay for controls, but they're advocates. They need to advocate in the organization to say, hey, I am the chief operating officer, but I sit on the risk committee and everybody in my organization is going to toe the line with this risk management policy that we have. So go talk to that chief risk officer or that chief information security officer person and make sure they're doing what's right and and abiding by what we say they do. And there's the other piece. That's the other pincer. Everybody's on the hook. I think that a hallmark of an organization that has high maturity is one where you roll into the place and it's your first day at work. You still have the cellophane on you. You learn where the bathroom's at, you learn where the lunchroom's at, but the very next thing that should take place is some kind of training, if not at least somebody handing you the policy, say, we manage risk in this organization. And when we do that, you're on the hook, just like everybody else. And by the way, I think the most important part of that discussion is educating. Mm-hmm. Level set, across the organization, risk is defined as uncertainty, period. Uncertainty can be good, And it's an opportunity. But it's a discussion point nonetheless. Absolutely. It's an opportunity just as much as a threat. I mean, if it wasn't an opportunity, there would be no gamblers. I don't know about you, but I play the lottery every day once in a while because you don't win if you don't play. Now, that said, I think that any risk is a balance. I mean, even if I said, I'm going to avoid a risk, I'm just not going to even go there. There's the opportunity risk that's been lost. And I think that once organizations get over that hurdle of understanding and seeing a risk for being not so much a red word or a bad thing, people will be more willing to come to the table and share their deepest and darkest concerns as well as their greatest aspirations. That's 100% what I believe. And so you can see that in, let's call those world-class organizations. But what about an organization where you don't even have a risk manager? Yeah, that's a great point. I would call that a nascent organization, right? Yes. And you see this a lot with startups, you know, being from the West yes. Coast, I'm sure you've seen yeah, this yeah, a no. lot. Risk is not a word. You know, exactly. Break stuff, ask questions later. Yeah, when they built Google and all the greats, you know, it was in a garage and they really weren't saying the word risk as much. I would hope that they did, but I would imagine that they yeah. didn't. So you're exactly right. And I totally agree that education is the way to go, but I'm just going to say that there are a lot of great resources out there to start with, and you don't have to get too hard about this. Coming from the risk end of the spectrum, you have a great conference like RIMS, things like that you could go to and just learn. But for the cyber side, the world is rich. You go to, for example, I'm from Carnegie Mellon University, the Software Engineering Institute website. You will find a wealth of resources, all free 
to the public that you can find in terms of research, cutting edge ideas and cyber, and you can get as deep technically as you want, yeah. or you could be more on the policy side as you want. So I think that there's, oh, and then you, I would be remiss to not mention all the standards that exist. You have ISO, you have COSO and all that good stuff going on, but don't, oh, and NIST. But one thing I should also mention is you have uh, CISA now mm -hmm. that is making a tremendous push into educating the public. Not only just the civilian federal government, but the public at large in terms of our critical infrastructure sectors. Yes. You see recently is, I think it's January, February timeframe where they published the CPG, Cyber Performance Goals. To be honest with you, if you're a nascent organization starting out with nothing, the CIS top 20 or CPGs, great place to start. And I would say that it's going to lead you down the path initially of good hygiene. Yeah. So we talk about good cyber hygiene. And by the way, it's so much more than just passwords. Yeah, <laughs> just yeah. Passwords. right. Absolutely. One thing I love about your framework, though, is it is also adaptive to the organization. So if you have governance, governments are the people making the decisions, right? And I just want to make sure I got this right. Then you have the policies that are created from that. And then you, and the last part is, what was the third one? So the key part of this is appetite. Appetite, So yeah. imagine that you have layers in an organization. What do you say, trust layers? No, I'm just... <laughs> yes. oh, that's a great way to put it. Because <laughs> you trust that the people beneath you in the organization are making the right decisions, right? But at the same time, you want to have some level and degree of control there. And this is where, as an executive, for me, it would get really terrifying because you have somebody who's in the trenches, maybe even in a SOC or a NOC, Security Operations Center, yep. Network Operations Center, and they're making decisions that, let's face it, their salaries, their limit of authority cannot cash. Yeah. They're buying into controls or they're making configuration decisions that could really change the direction of the entire company in terms of its security stack. And making them with little thought and right. process. Yeah, and so much in cybersecurity right now, you see people, they just put their thumb up and they're like, oh, this worked better, this worked at my last job, so I'm going to do it again here. Yeah, you know, that right, kind of absolutely. Thing. Or maybe they see a website and they're like, oh, new policy because I think that one looks bad, that kind of a thing. And by the way, I'm not saying that that's negative. I'm not saying that there's bad things there, but I, there should be a, a, for a horrible word to use, choiceful process to this. And appetite is one way to control this. Now, I got to be very specific here. A lot of people, when they say risk appetite, they talk about, oh, we have a low or a low appetite for taking risk in this company. And I'm the one to argue that. What the hell do you mean by that? So low to me, I don't know about you, I don't make much. 10 bucks is a lot of money, right? Yeah. So low is anything. So you're basically shutting me down from doing anything in the organization without having somebody say yes. And an organization just can't work like that. Others may sit around and say, nah, 10 bucks, Brett. Uh, I sit around and I'd say a million bucks is a lot of money. So you have them now making those decisions where yeah. their bodies can't cash the checks. What you're describing is like the old Navy waterline. Like what is that waterline for every organization? That's right. And the trick to a good risk appetite statement is having quantifiable tolerances to, that are linked directly to the strategy of your organization, the strategic objectives you're trying to accomplish. So that way people know what they have limits of authority to respond to. And by the way, if I'm in over my head, who do I go to? So do I go to a risk committee? Do I go to the board level? Yeah, let's talk about that for a second because I think to define that appetite, which I like to think of it more maybe uh, your risk tastes, right? Right, because it's what like- What you're willing to esteem. Well, yeah, well, I, I like Chinese food mostly and this other thing. Oh, people like, people hate spinach, but you gotta eat spinach. Yeah, right. <laughs> go ahead. But when you're defining that that way, how do you make sure that the people with the best context are defining- those elements. Because 
where that governance sits and who's a part of that really dictates if that risk appetite is any good and will be healthy for the organization in the first place. Fabulous question. So I talk about this in that Octave Forte framework that I talk uh, that's on the SEO website. And I have a couple of podcasts on this. I'll go to any organization and give you an hour discussion on this. Crafting a risk appetite statement is a marathon, not a sprint. And it is a challenge for a lot of organizations because let's face it, you're getting your executives to kind of fess up to what's their deepest and darkest concerns. They're typically not even willing to discuss that amongst themselves in a right. boardroom setting, let alone an external organization. And I'm not saying you should discuss risk appetite, risk appetite external to an organization, but what I'm saying is people will clamshell up. They yes. don't want to talk about it. So I have a couple of recommendations here, having done this myself in the past. One is try to arrange for one-on-one -on -one discussions with the critical or with the executives in your organization that are making these risk-based decisions. Yeah. I almost said critical assets. People are assets, but I didn't want to be you yeah. know, yes. diminutive to them. At the same time, you must go in prepared to A, tell them what you're trying to accomplish by getting their deepest and darkest concerns, and B, demonstrate how it's going to be applied, right? Have a use case scenario to say, hey, if you gave us this tolerance and somebody in the organization identifies a risk, they do the analysis, they do the hard stuff, and they come to you and they say, we have a $10 million risk. How do you feel about that, Mrs. or Mr. Executive? And they would say, oh, well, I would want to know that in a heartbeat, and I would want to see more of it. That is how you would properly facilitate this discussion. I would caution anyone who, especially a nascent or new risk manager, somebody who's in an organization that's never done it before, to bring everybody in one room and say, okay, we're going to talk about risk appetite today because it will be like the Muppet movie. There are people like hang from rafters. There'll be people who hide in corners. <laughs> yes. There'll yeah, be absolutely. like the alpha dogs that'll sit up front and like say, what are we doing here? What are we doing this for? So that's why I say marathon on a sprint needs to be somewhat organic. One other thing about this, once you have that appetite in hand, it must once again have that advocacy. So your board or senior level executives must approve it and provide advocacy to the organization say, we shall follow these tolerances. People will come to us with their risks that they have, and it's not a negative thing. Aha, another piece here. No sticks on this one. Got to be carrots. So many times people use red, yellow, and green yeah. to characterize the risks. Be cautious with that. People don't want to have red on, on anything that right. they report to executive team. Yes, absolutely. So there has to be a cultural shift in the organization to understand that red does not mean negative. Red means you need help. Yeah, critical decision needed here. That's right. Somebody please stop and be an adult about this situation. Yeah, look both ways before you cross the street. Perfect. That's perfect. So when you do system design, which is a lot of the referencing you're making, and my background is in design thinking. So when you talk about system design, you have the processes, which are the policies that we draft, but you also have a cultural element that you have to deal with, which is everything that your policies haven't covered yet. So is that where your statement really plays a big role in that and defining that? Absolutely. So actually, yeah. So by definition, it's more than just administrative controls. We also have physical controls. We also have technical controls. And as you know, like those Venn diagram really well together, you have to have a nice overlap. So we have what we call a defense and depth strategy that you've built around your organization. So that way, it's almost like, I like to use this analogy, Lord of the Rings. We're big fans, right? Yeah. You have the crown jewels at the center of a castle and you build out walls around said castle so the orcs and ogres and all the bad things can't get in. Each wall that you build is that layer to build that defense in-depth strategy. And at the same time, some walls have castellations with archers. Some have boiling pots of tar. Those are the way you configure those walls to slow those attackers down. Okay, so go back to this idea of, Brett, the technical stack. How would you negotiate that? 
there has to be a technologist discussion just as much as there is a user and ownership discussion. And the challenge here can be that, let's face it, if CISOs own the world, like we would just air gap everything and no one would touch it. Because by the way, insider threat is a thing and it's very pernicious. So they say, just stay away from my stack, right? And you just can't operate like that. So yeah, that's where the cultural piece comes in. There needs to be a greater understanding of how people are going to use the technology, what they need from it, what kind of information they have. And this is where you're starting to go with like these zero trust strategies now, right? Zero trust architectures, where we need to be more particular about what our employee base has access to. And by the way, it goes for the managers who are signing the roles at the same time. A lot of times you get a new employee and like, yeah, they need access to everything. That's wrongheaded. That manager needs to step back and say, no, what project are they going to be working on? And we must tailor So that way this person has the proper access to get the job done. And at the same time, if that person leaves the project, they need to understand that their access is going to change so you don't have creep in the organization. That is very much a cultural kind of discussion and not a technical one when it comes to zero trust architectures. And I think that unfortunately people like hear the word zero trust and automatically thinking, ah, what technology am I going to use? I'm going to get in the cloud or something like that. But it, it comes back to training the managerial team so that they know what responsibilities, what accountability, what authority they're providing to their people. Yeah, I totally agree with you. What's next? What are you working on next? So right now, that's a great question. In my research portfolio, something I'm really excited about, and it's been building a bit of steam, is measurement of cyber complexity. The idea here is that organizations have so much going on in terms of the technology. They have so much going on in terms of administration and physical controls and all that, that there's going to be too much. There's going to be a tipping point where you're not going to be able to achieve your organizational objectives just because... For example, zero trust, if I just keep kicking people out because every time I ping them in a system, you're not going to get things done. Okay. Yeah, people will circumvent the system. That's right. It doesn't work on their behalf at all either. That's exactly right. So what I'm trying to do is put math to this. I'm trying to understand how best to measure complexity, cyber complexity to be more specific. And in doing so, I want to establish a risk metric, a proxy metric, if you will, that if I understood the complexity of my system, What can I do to control it? Notice, I'm very careful to say control it. I don't want to dial away all complexity. And a lot of people have trouble understanding this or or agreeing with me at times, but hear me out. If I have system segmentation in my networks, if I have a zero trust architecture, fine. You need that, right? That is introducing complexity into the system, right? Just as much as at the far end of the spectrum where if I eliminate all that, the system could be so non-complex that an advanced persistent threat or somebody who gets a threat actually gets in the system just walks right up to that crown jewel, takes it and walks out. Right, absolutely. So what we're calling for in complexity is actually a balance of how much do I need to have my organization versus can I eliminate it? Now, if you think about it- And that gives the overzealous leaders a barometer to understand how they're also driving the ship. That's exactly right. Now you can make better risk-based decisions. I'm bringing new assets to my organization. I'm going to put them in my cybersecurity stack. I could actually, I don't know, titrate or run some kind of sensitivity analysis. Yes, a simulation or, or, yeah, put it in a sandbox and understand like how the system's bogged down. But let's go back to the cultural piece. I have maybe a big integrated firewall solution or something like that that I'm bringing in. And it's going to take me six, 12 months, 18 months to get somebody totally educated and proficient at properly configuring and utilizing that integrated firewall solution. So there's a wetware 
challenge that we have in organizations too, as much as the cultural piece of people just using the right passwords and whatnot, right? right? Yes. That goes down. And then there's one other factor here. So I talked about basically the flow of information in our organization, talked about segmentation, things like that. Then I talked about the wetware, people having to adapt their brain to negotiate complexity. But the other piece is technical debt. And by definition, we know technical debt is the fact that we have software producers, right? Foundries that are like building systems, building products, and they're running for the horizon so fast and so hard, there's bound to be errors. Yes, right. That's technical debt by definition. But there's also legacy technical debt. So you talk about organizations that have technology like reel-to-reel tapes for backups, things like that, that they're still trying to negotiate and maybe get transitioned out, but they have to deal with that and figure out like, how is that bogging down my system given the new controls I have? Maybe I have processors that really can't even accept the technology that I'm trying to bring into the organization at this point. So these three factors come together and I'm going to one-up you one more, Jason. Okay, let's do it. Yeah. So there's also this idea of having service providers, third-party providers, consultants, and or new technology I bring in the organization. Yeah. They have their own complexity 100%. that they're bringing into yeah. the organization, which is really going to be mucking up the works, right? So even if I were to put myself in my silo or in my bubble and negotiate and figure out what my complexity is, Now I got to deal with everything on the outer layer of my organization and the people that I depend on. And you also think too, and I'm going to leave this one, the resources I have. It takes money to train people. It takes advocacy. And their capacity. Exactly. Yes, exactly. And how do we even measure that, by the way? That's a whole nother discussion. But yeah, so this complexity issue has come about now and I'm trying to advance that. To answer your original question, some other things, trying to investigate efficacy of controls in a system. How do I understand what kind of return on investment that I'm getting out of controls I build in a system? One thing, and I'm going to guess where you're going to go with this, but in coming from corporate and coming from enterprise organizations, when people talk about their systems, sometimes they're talking about, they treat it like they have multiple systems versus understanding it's an ecosystem across the board. So in the case of you have legacy, well, we have that legacy system, but we spun up this new cloud-based system over here and this is how we protect this one and not this one. And it seems like organizations are coming from a very scattered place into wanting to unify themselves under one broader, I don't know, ecosystem, to call it that, the system. Is that correct? I mean, you're dealing with, like, the complexity is, it's broken apart now. It's not all just one thing being run by one system at this point in time. Not only do I second that, but I think that organizations now need to adapt and adopt a new philosophy that the ecosystem goes beyond the technical, goes beyond the cyber. You mentioned the cultural piece already, right? And I am a big proponent of having an integrated risk register at this point. If it's liquidity that the boardroom is thinking about, if it's strategy, if it's ethics, whatever the case may be, Cyber tends to be that silver thread, if you will, that goes through a lot of different needles in an organization. I get challenged on this at times, and I'll even give you an example. Think about, for example, like mergers and acquisitions. I don't know about you, but we talked about that a lot at the board level in terms of enterprise risk. There's a big things that are going on there. There's an element of cyber that needs to be discussed there. That organization is bringing their own tech stack. They're bringing their own culture, and they have their own policies in place. That discussion must go down. So a CISO needs to be at the table for just about all enterprise risk discussions anymore, just because of the interconnectedness. And because, yeah, that's how we are storing our information. It's part of a broader... That's right. Technology is just so ubiquitous now. It's inescapable. I really appreciate you joining us. This is one of the most fascinating conversations I've had on the (laughs) podcast. I really appreciate you. Thank you so much, Brett. Yeah, sure. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jason. It's my pleasure to welcome Justin Smolson to Brick by Brick. Justin is the business content manager at RIMS and also the host of their official podcast. 
It's a great listen if you haven't listened. He interviews tons and tons of people in the community, always entertaining, and he's really great to talk to. We talk about the business of managing a podcast, how to be a great podcast host, and why RIMS is so special. Take a listen. Hey, Justin, thank you so much for joining me on Brick by Brick during RIMS. It is a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. I know you're probably busy during RIMS, but I want to start off right away. What does success for you at a RIMS event look like? Success for me is when I've met all my deadlines. Yeah. And because I'm also one of the de facto writers when we're here. So I help with the show daily. So when I get to do that and enjoy myself a little bit at night, that's success for me personally. For the organization, I think it's when the majority of the attendees leave feeling that they can take something back to their own organizations to help their organizations or them personally succeed. Yeah, great. One thing you just mentioned was the show. So what goes into producing something like RIMS? It is a basically a year-long endeavor. I know that, and I know a lot of the my colleagues at RIMS work really, really hard, even starting in May for the next year. So it's a wheel. Yeah. And what's the relationship to the actual podcast? Oh, yeah. Before we go there, let's take a step back and go... How did you become the host of the Remus podcast? How did you end up in that seat? It's super cool. So there had been a, I was hired in 2017. There had been a podcast that Rims had done previously. It wasn't very well done. It was just a bunch of people talking about stuff. Yeah. And it lasted eight or nine episodes and then it was forgotten about. And then sometime in 2017 or early 2018, I, we were talking about ideas for doing new things. And I said, well, I'd like to host the podcast. And they said, okay, cool. And then we called it RIMSCAST. We launched in September. And it was basically, it was born out of me liking to speak more than liking to write. Yeah. (laughs) I was hired as the content writer. Yeah. And I was okay. Yeah. But I really, I found that as I was speaking with people for articles and things like that, I liked hitting it off with them more than writing about them. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, I think that's the plight. Yeah. So they said, so before I knew it, it was gaining traction. It found an audience. We even started to get sponsored episodes and that became more prominent in my role. And then my role kind of changed a little bit. And then I started doing it. I'm not really a writer unless I'm asked for something like Risk World or something yeah. like that. And I get to produce the webinars, the podcasts, and a lot of the media sorts of things. And I host on-site events and sessions. So it's, it has helped change the trajectory of my career. And I've always been very fortunate about What that. do you think is important about a good podcast, a good podcast host? What's a good podcast guest? Okay, start with the host. I think the host, like you needs to be engaged. You need to be making eye contact. Even if you're doing it remotely, you got to be there. You can't be like turking your phone and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And the guest, I seek the guests out a lot of the time. Yeah. Not all the time, but most of the time. Because either they're prominent members of RIMS who have something really cool to say. Maybe they've won an award, something like that. Or they can speak to the news of the day. And I bet them in a very limited capacity because there's not a whole lot of time sometimes. But if they come with credit, then that's what I want. Yeah. For you and the time that you've done this, what are some of the most memorable moments of being the host or guests that you've had? Okay. So we've had some, that's a great question. Give me a, a moment to think. I mean, every year I love covering risk manager of the year. And we try to do that leading up to Risk World just to help drive some enthusiasm for the awards luncheon and just to show that these people, they're not just a flash in the pan. They've worked their whole lives in a lot of cases to get to where they are. I think that's really important. It is. And you want people to feel special. So it's those sorts of things that I really like doing. 
every once in a while, I'll get someone who maybe is not a risk manager or in the risk profession, but they can speak to something that's happening in the news. And that's really cool. A couple of my favorite, I like the international guests as well. I like the people who are from other sides of the world who can provide a different perspective for us. I think that's really cool stuff too. That's cool. Oh, and can I get a quick special shout out? In 2021, we had Sean McCann on the show. And he's a singer, very famous in Canada. He was in a group called Great Big C. And he was the musical keynote for the virtual RIMS Canada event. And he was the guest. And he was exceptional. Oh, that's good. He was one of the standouts for sure. One of the reasons that I want to start this is I'm a technologist. So I'm from Silicon Valley. Okay. I work at tech company. Okay. But while I am an executive and I know sales and marketing and customer success, when I came into the insurance world, what really surprised me was the diversity in risk management, yeah. in the risk manager themselves. And it really spurred me to want to do this podcast to explore where those people come from, because I find it to be a very fascinating field and very broad in how people ended up in here. And I think one sentiment that gets brought up time and time again, as I talk to these risk managers, is the idea that there's a certain legacy group of risk managers who are about to retire or who have information to share. And there is a gap in the workforce moving forward. Is that something that you've heard as a issue in the industry as well? Yes, it is. There was, I worked on the 2025 talent, sorry, the talent risk report or the risk talent report, something like that. Look, it was a couple of years ago that we published it and it looked to 2025. We spoke to exactly that. And That was one of the concerns that the people who were going to be, and this was pre-COVID also, so things may have changed since then, of course, but I think the transfer of knowledge was a major issue that was identified. And I don't personally have the answer to why or how that could be solved. It was really, I just think people needed to sit down, maybe, I don't want to say check themselves at the door, but maybe kind of park their ego a little bit and maybe just sit and speak to a small audience of their own company and just say, hey, here's what I'm thinking. And as I'm out the door, here's what I think you might want to take a look at. That's what I would have done, but I don't know if they did that. The other thing that we hear a lot is the integration of technology yes. into the space. Yeah. It's going to be a multi-billion dollar industry in risk tech. That's what we projected years ago. Not we, RIMS. It was something that was projected at a risk at a RIMS event a few years ago. Multi-billion dollars coming up. Yeah. That's really exciting for what I'm trying to define as the modern risk manager. So from your perspective, having talked to so many different people, what is a modern risk manager? A modern risk manager, it is somebody who can have their feet in both worlds, I think. And that being? That being one, using tech against the backdrop of technology, someone who's going to use the tech use the data, but then also rely a little bit on that legacy philosophy, those sorts of things. But if you don't lean into some of the tech and have one or two favorite providers, services, programs or something, then I don't know how well it's going to work out for you. It might work out really well, but I would advise that. You're utilizing your data to shift the perspective and risk from being a cost center to a value add in a business is something that many risk managers are looking to accomplish. And let it tell the story. Let it tell the story for you. You can use the numbers and then create the brief narrative around it. I mean, Johnny Taylor did that this morning. And I think that was a great example. Even, what was it? When he saw the multi-generational, did you see that part? I saw part of yeah, it. Yeah, the multi-generational, about how there's five generations right now. And he was showing the data of the different percentages of who's where. And if you do that and just, it lends itself to a few really impactful sentences or paragraphs that can help you tell the story and make your case. As a 
former writer and now host, right? Or sometimes writer and sometimes writer. Host now. now. What about chat GPT and these kind of technologies coming in and threatening that part of your livelihood? Are you worried about it? Are you not worried about it? Do you, what's the answer for you? I'm not terribly worried about it. I've found that the people, when I've asked similar questions about that, the real leaders are the ones who hate to use the buzzword, but like lean into it. I mean, I once asked, I'll kind of change direction a little bit. I once asked a heavy metal guitarist if he got annoyed that everybody was holding up their phones during shows instead of just rocking out, right? And he said, you know what? At first I was bummed out and I don't love the sound quality that comes out of it, but it's helping spread awareness. So I may as well just embrace it or else I'm just going to be one of those cranky old men. So that's how I apply my philosophy toward it. If it's here to stay, cool. I'll figure out how to use it to my advantage, but I don't think it's going to replace me. At least if I don't let it replace me. Yeah. I think that technology is evolving so quickly that now technology is moving into the space of the technologist, right? And now the technologist has to ask themselves the same questions that the layman had to ask themselves in the past, right? And we're all being faced with this conundrum of how do we integrate technology and make it work for us and not against us? Sure. In my own personal case, it's as simple as just still speaking into Siri and just saying, hey, remind me to go to the interview in the press room at 4.30. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Just do that. I mean, I found that to be invaluable. You know how many anniversaries I've remembered now? (laughs) That sort of thing. That's good. I should start to deploy that tactic. Yeah, yeah. Why are you trying to remember it anymore? Let Siri figure it out for you. Trying to think through, where would you like to see the cast go? Where would you like to see your show develop into? Well, in some ways... It has happened a little bit. On a very, very selfish note, because of the work that I did on RIMSCAST, I was asked to host, be the Master of Ceremonies at RIMS Canada Conference 2021 in Halifax, which was amazing. And that's all because I've got a big mouth at work and I just like to talk to people. I mean, yeah. you know what it's like. You like talking to people? Cool. And sometimes, every once in a while, you hit it off with somebody and they say, you know what? You're doing such a great job and we like what you're doing. Why don't you come out and just introduce the sessions, introduce the stuff? And I said, no, oh, it's great. Yeah. And it helps and people listen. And, and just because you're not getting accolades every single day doesn't mean that people aren't listening or they're not engaged. And every once in a while, somebody will come up to me and say, hey, you did that episode with a person about SVB. And that's super cool. Great job. Learned a lot. Love the clip. Cool. That's great. I wasn't expecting a compliment, but I'll take it. Yeah. So I'd like to see that sort of thing happen more. I would like to have... I'd like our show to have a little bit more of a presence at these sorts of things instead of me just walking up people with a microphone. But I'm also very much aware that there's cost involved and and these things, that means you're at the booth all day. I like to be moving around a lot. So either way, as long as there's some recognition for the product and the brand and its value, then I'm happy to just go in whatever direction. That what do you think me. about people? Because you've probably gotten that. I get this asked a lot, which is, the value of for organizations to create this on their create their own podcast or create their own brand or all those things. What advice do you have on creating something that's authentic and connect at the same time as be a promotional vehicle? This is one of the most fascinating things that I've learned because I've been doing this now for like almost five years, right? And first, it doesn't cost a whole lot of money, which is great. So if you have to make a financial case right off the bat, It doesn't take a whole long time to just do a little research and say, it costs this much for a good mic. It costs this much for a live mic like these. These are really cool. And it costs this much to produce it, maybe to hire an engineer every once in a while or regularly. And it costs this much to distribute it through Libsyn or something like that. Here's my monthly ask. 
it's probably only going to be in the hundreds, yeah. which I think most companies can't afford. And from there, then you say, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to make it. In my case, I said, I promised myself I'd make it weekly with minor exception. I said, I'm going to stick to weekly so that everybody can see that I'm doing something. I'm cranking this stuff out, not for the sake of checking the box, but because I care about what I'm doing. That consistency was part of the strategy. Absolutely. And that's a great way of putting it because once everybody saw that I was really sincere about the intention, then that's when the sponsors came in. They said, this guy keeps doing it and he keeps doing it. He's getting better with each one. It took like a hundred episodes before I felt really good about it. And then I felt really good about it. And now I never feel like I've nailed it. And I always try to show the higher ups at RIMS that this, not just it's all about me and it's not about that. It is trying to help give the risk professionals there something to take away, even if it's just a five-second clip that resonates with them. Maybe it follows them into their sleep or something like that. But first, I would say make the financial case and then get a little involved with how to do some of the stuff in case maybe your engineer ghosts you or something like that or uh, or you need to learn how to write a script. You have to write scripts for yourself a lot, which is cool. You know how you speak, right? I know how I speak. I spell things out phonetically for myself, that kind of stuff. Do all that kind of stuff and just get embedded in it and just keep doing it. And if you can show that there's value and if people are responding on LinkedIn and Twitter, and even if they're just liking it, then you've got something. And my feeling is that if the show has had any success, it's because it had support from the top, especially when they saw that we were serious and that it was cost-effective. What about some business podcasts are (laughs) and some aren't? (laughs) Some of them might be, yeah. What's that factor for you? I hate to say it like this, but I don't listen to a ton of podcasts. I used to listen to a couple, what was it one called Planet Money? Yeah, that was a good one. Those guys, they were like, really quick. And real produced. Right, well produced. Yes, that the sonic quality is really important because if you have somebody who sounds like this, I don't want to listen to that. I get it if there's a real issue going on, but otherwise it was well-produced. Those guys were funny. They made it digestible. And I try to do that. I use that as inspiration a little bit because I'm not a risk professional, but my guests are. So my, I want to bring the best out of them. And even if they can't match my energy level, they've got me on the intellectual level. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's the way to go. I find for myself, it's trying to find my own truth and with whatever the guest is bringing to the podcast, how to relate to it, how to summarize what they're trying to say, and then make that as digestible for everyone as possible. Because one of the things that I love really about doing this, and I've done many different podcasts in my career, and usually as a way of exploring an industry for myself, and then end up somehow becoming part of that industry by exploring it, is I love to have people on my podcast who don't have a lot of media training who don't have a lot of media experience, right? Because what they're talking about is pure passion. It's not something they're doing as part of their job. They're doing it because they really care about it. And I find that to be really, really powerful. And I enjoy that translation. Yeah. Trying to take what they're saying. And obviously they know what they do the best, but just making it a little bit more acceptable and plowable to the audience. Absolutely. I approach it very similarly. Some of the people that have come on Rimscast, many of them are people that I've known because they're members or they may have served on a committee where I'm the staff liaison. So I know them a little bit. So if there's any quote unquote media training, it's me prepping them ahead of pressing record. That happens, but it's cool. You know, you can add that to your own resume, right? You help prep people for media. 
it's cool that you say that, though, that you like people who have no real training. And I guess the challenge there, and it seems like it is to get them to warm up, and it's quick. It's a skill to get people to warm up in five minutes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. If you don't get it within the first five minutes, you kind of know in your mind, oh, no, this isn't going the way I But want have it. you ever had that moment when you're doing a podcast? I had this, not in this career, but when I worked in pure tech and I was doing a business podcast in tech. And I had this person who was just so boring, so boring. <laughs> they were really intelligent. But then they started talking about how they used to be in P-Funk, like the band. They were in Parliament yeah. Funkadelic? Yeah. yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. And, a, and a background singer. Wow. And, this, and then like as soon as- Was it a man or a woman? A woman. Okay. And as soon as I picked that up, I could kind of see them open up and express themselves. And I think that one of the most beautiful things about audio and doing the podcast is that it allows people to sort of, if you can get them to open up, be themselves fully and integrated, the, the business side and their personal side. Those are the best moments where I feel the most proud of what I'm doing. Was the singer one of the background singers from PCU? Yes. Was it really? Yes. Oh my gosh, she comes out of the bathroom or yes, something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah totally absolutely. Know. Yeah, I don't know exactly which one it was. Oh, that's super cool. My name's Stacy. So, okay. Stacy, if you're listening to this, I'm sorry that I said you were super boring, but you no, turned out not to be. But no, you're certainly not. You were in one of my favorite movies. <laughs> Very good. Stomp, stomp. Uh, yeah, right. absolutely. <laughs> I know what you're saying. Sometimes you just, maybe you have to deviate from the scripted questions to get somebody to open up a little yeah, bit. Yeah, and, and yes. like pull and pull. We have, because I've done a lot of the podcasts, we actually have a good amount of listeners who are just come from business backgrounds who are listening. What's the best piece of business advice you've ever gotten? That I've ever gotten? Uh, yeah, that you that is in the back of your head sometimes that you call forward when you need to. Best piece of business advice. Well, it's not business advice in the way of career. It's actually something that was handed to me as a writer that I needed to hear that I have used as an audio producer, let's just say. And it's not the greatest phrase, but I will say it is the most effective one. It actually came from RIMS Publications Director Morgan O'Rourke, who hired me. <laughs> and as I was writing the first few big pieces for him, he said, listen... You're trying too hard. You got to kill your darlings. Yes. And I hated that at first, not because it wasn't true. It's because I hated the term. I don't know why, but I've come to embrace it. And as I go, as I produce other things, live events, podcasts, or webinars, I do find that I have to cut the fat as much as yeah. possible. My first podcast was Kill Your Silos for oh, that very really? reason. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so you know. Yeah, just let's pull everything out and talk through all of the dirty laundry that exists. Yeah, and be willing to sacrifice it. Right. And it's hard because there, it's not that I think that I'm so great, but there were probably a couple of sentences that I thought, oh, well, this is brilliant and this is going to get me some notoriety. And I'm taking it from him. But I have applied that through other parts of my career. Yeah. I think that's incredibly valuable for anyone to actually process and understand, which is the thing that's most sacred to you is not always the most important thing you're trying to communicate. 100%. Well, thank you so much for joining me on Brick by Brick. I really appreciate it, Justin. And I hope you have a very good RIMS conference. Thank you so much. Thank you, my friend. Now joining me live from Riskworld is Marin Mooney. Marin has over 20 years of experience in the insurance industry from claims to risk management to advocacy to always saying that insurance is sexy. Join me in a great conversation with Marin. Thank you for joining me on Brick by Brick. How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? Good. So you're a speaker at RIMS this year. I am. You have a yes. lot going on. Yes. So <laughs> what was your speaking panel about? It was differentiators with recruiting, hiring, and retaining top talent in the insurance industry. This is a big concern for people that come on the podcast. They often talk about the aging out of certain people, the lack of talent being attracted to the field. 
And one thing that I'm really passionate about is trying to coin this term, the modern risk manager, someone who is passionate for this industry and also sort of has an intersection with technology. Why don't you give me, what's your perspective on the modern risk manager? What's that look like? I think it's someone who is really interested in education and just continually learning and developing and growing. So um, coming to events like this to develop your, learn about things you haven't necessarily gotten involved with or even honing in the knowledge that you already have and just perfecting that knowledge. And then also the biggest piece is networking with your industry peers, seeing what they're experiencing. Are they going through the same things that you are? Kind of back and forth where you can find common ground or even give each other ideas and bounce things off of each other. When, how long have you been in the industry? For about 16 years. Okay. Has it changed? Has it evolved? Is it, has it always been this welcoming community like space as it is now or? I feel like it's always been a welcoming community and space. I think the way that it's evolving is just implementing technology and like adapting with the trends that you're seeing in the industry. Like my industry is the construction industry. So what trends and um, things are you dealing with in the construction industry? So the hot buttons recently, supply chain, the talent issue, those kinds of things. So that's what we're kind of seeing and looking at right now. Let's take those issues because I talked to a lot of construction risk managers. Supply chain is an issue because... Well, there's just the lack of supply or there's specialized mechanical pieces of HVAC equipment and that kind of thing. So your lead times are just taking two to three times as long to get to your project. So your projects are delayed and then you have delay costs and issues to deal with. with And that's rising to the attention now of risk managers where maybe that was before in the realm of project, right? So you have to be, you have to get creative and try to think outside the box. Like how can we address these supply chain issues? Are there things that we can get? Like, can we purchase steel and store it on site somewhere? Do we have a warehouse that we can purchase things in bulk that we can take care of? And then those add extra risk because then it's your property insurance is, is you need to make sure you have enough property insurance to cover those risks if there's damage or whatever happens. So it creates new risks when you're trying to solve the trends in the industry. One of the, my favorite things to think about is how every opportunity or choice we make opens the door to future risk. And when we talk about risk appetite or when we talk about things where it's like the cost of doing business is always going to inherent risk. How do you recommend to, say, a risk manager who's looking at their program that they evaluate those risks and take those opportunities for growing their business at the same time as protecting the business? Right. You always have to think of those unintended consequences, right? So think of the risk as a whole, like big picture, and then you kind of have to narrow it in. And you have to consult with all of your constituents. So like meet with your supply chain people, like what's possible? What can we do? What's feasible? What makes sense? And then start to try to see if you can implement that. And But you also have to think of from the insurance side, make sure that your insurance carriers and your brokers are on board and And have the solutions that you need for the problems you're trying to solve. That brings up a very interesting thing. So it seems more and more the modern risk manager also has to be someone who can break down silos and bring teams together. How can a risk manager really build like a framework for ensuring that they're cross-collaborating and that they're bringing all the people to the table and really being an asset to an organization. I think it's the whole concept of teamwork, bringing everybody to the table. You all have different viewpoints and perspectives and being open and willing to listen and hear those because what one person is thinking of in their own silo, the other person, it affects them. So they have to hear each other so that they can, maybe there's a leaner process. Maybe they can do something better to enhance it. Or maybe there's something that needs to change because there's some breakdown that's not working out. So I think that whole teamwork aspect really helps you in all aspects of your career and your business. Especially like when we talk 
talk about these supply chain issues because the impact might be felt in one department, but in order to get those things to that place requires so many chains, right? So much chain. The second thing you mentioned was the resource gap. So what is that resource gap in your own words, in your own opinion? So there's the talent, the sheer shortage of talent or retaining the talent that you do have. So what kinds of programs and processes do you have in place to retain talent or attract talent do you have? Do you have referral bonus programs at your company? Do you have... One of the things the keynote speaker talked about yesterday morning was what employees wanted in 2020 versus what they want in 2023. And the difference in just that short amount of time is pretty phenomenal. Like rather than sympathy, they want empathy. Rather than perks, they want money. Just give me the money. Give me the paycheck. Instead of... Oh, I can't remember. They're really interested in career development. So... Yes, I might be a flight risk. I might leave the company after several years. But if you really help prepare me for that next role, which at the end of the day, it benefits the industry. And I feel like that should be the goal. So maybe it's not so much, you can't have my people. I don't want you to have my people. Maybe we just elevate it all and make everybody better for wherever they're going to go in the industry. One of the things that I like to focus on or I'm passionate about is helping people find what they're passionate about. And there's so many avenues in the insurance industry where you can work. You can work in claims. You can work in underwriting. You can work in the broker side, the insurance side. So helping people find those passions, I think really benefits everybody. And you can keep them in the industry. It might just be a different role or different sect of the industry. Right. And they become more well-rounded because of that. Exactly. Yeah. One thing I'm just personally a fan of is generalists over specialists, right? So having this idea that people should experience multiple avenues in an industry to really bring that. And I think one of the roles that benefits the most from that is a risk management role. Yeah, exactly. I mean, even when I worked for the large general contractor and I was the claims manager, it's not that my employer didn't say I couldn't go on vacation, but I didn't want to go on vacation because there was nobody to do my job. So if you really have that generalist perspective, that generalist attitude and want your people to cross train and learn, it's a really great benefit to the company, not just in the aspect of knowledge, but people can go on vacation or they can step in and fill a different role that they didn't know that they liked before. Yeah. Well, I think for a lot of risk managers, one of the things that they deal with is either you're at an organization where these things are so clearly defined or you're in an organization where they're not defined at all, right? And it's really hard to find that middle ground. Yeah. Why is that? Why do some organizations not value, right, risk management, someone who really understands insurance as an example, and then others are so process-driven that it might not even be creative in, in order to be in that field. And I know that most risk managers view their job as creative. Yeah. I wonder if it differs in industry. I know where I was before. We had the VP of risk management. We have the insurance program. Then you have the claims person. And I think we all worked synergistically together because my claims impacted the insurance program, the insurance. And then, then together, it was the whole risk management perspective. So I don't know. I, that's a tough question. In the construction industry, what are some of the trends that you think are happening as it relates to insurance, as it relates to risk management that you think that we're going to be talking about next year at RIMS? Well, I mean, everybody knows that it's a hard market and your insurance rates are going up and mostly all lines of business. So that's, I mean... I feel like the market's still hard. It might be starting to soften a little bit, but with all of the catastrophic events happening, the property insurance world, I think is still going to be really difficult. And there's a lot of carriers pulling out of the markets, like in Florida and New York City, like nobody wants to write business in those states. So it's really hard to get your people insurance, like work comp or some of the things that I think Florida's doing right now with insurance law is really trying to help bring back the life to the property insurance market where carriers are going to be a little bit more willing to write business there now. Yes. Um, so hopefully those laws will help trend things in the right way. But sometimes the plaintiff's bar is a little challenging to deal with. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, that's really interesting. So yeah, because the businesses are still wanting to grow. So does that mean that for a construction company to continue to grow, they're going to have to look to go into other markets, other regions, other forms of building? Like how are construction companies going to continue to expand successfully? I think diversifying their offerings. So if they're like, what kinds of commercial markets are you, are you going to add in data centers? Are you going to do da- aviation? Um, finding those niche specialties that you can do and then grow those businesses and find out what areas in the country like have that need. Yeah. So more diversification of yeah. what you're doing. But you have to be careful too, because... That opens you up to a lot of risk yeah, that you might not you be aware of, Yeah, you need experienced people. Yeah. For example, in the hospital realm, if you don't have people with the experience building hospitals, well, you're probably not going to really get into that arena because the owners want people with experience. Yeah, So of it's course. kind of a delicate balance there again. It, a lot of construction companies are, I guess, becoming conglomerations or... JVs, yeah, yeah, joint ventures. Yeah, and, and mm-hmm. all of these things. Is that something that you think is good for the industry or something that you don't think is good? No, I think it's good because it's two people bringing together their strengths to form something even more strong. So where one entity might have more talent has that backlog to bring the to the industry and then they're helping this maybe smaller or less experienced contractor build up their portfolio of aviation. So it's sort of a rising tide raises all ships. So I like that aspect of it. It can be tricky when you're writing the insurance programs to see who gets have the insurance program and who gets to run that, who has the better risk management processes in place. So that becomes interesting to work through, but I think it's exciting. Yeah, that's great. Let's talk a little bit about your background and your passion for insurance. As you said, you like to say that you want to make insurance sexy. What's that mean? I don't... <laughs> well, so my background is like, I'll, you'll probably find that many people who come to insurance, they just land in it. They didn't go to school for it necessarily, although that's starting to change. Yes. So I had a medical background before I came to the construction industry and the doctor I worked for was retiring. His mother-in-law worked at this general contractor and there was an opening in the legal department. So I started out as a legal admin in the legal department with no legal background, no legal knowledge, no construction background, but my manager was just willing to teach me. And I think that's key. If you can find people who are teachable, that you can just really do mold them into who you want. So I started taking on claims probably the year after my second year working there. And that just built up from there. And I ended as a claims manager. So it was just, I got to this point in my life where I just wanted to learn more and I wanted to grow more and I wanted to move on. And so I started learning about insurance. And there was a gentleman that used to work in the risk management department. And he he would always say, insurance is sexy. And so I used to think he was crazy. But then as I started working in the business, I realized, well, this is awesome. Like there's so many different avenues. No day is ever the same. No claim is ever the same. And I don't know, it just became this thing that I really love doing. So yeah. (laughs) (laughs) What do you think is a good trait in someone to get into the insurance industry? I mean, I have, based on your story, it sounds like curiosity is a big driver. Yeah, curiosity, a thirst for knowledge, and just this willingness to learn more. I think curiosity is a great word to describe that. We have a lot of people who listen to this podcast who are just entering into the business world, maybe in insurance, not insurance. What's some of the advice that you've given or have gotten that's been really helpful for your career? I think the networking is really important in this industry. Find people who are doing what you think you might want to be doing and just go ride their coattails, ask them questions, ask them what their days are like, ask them what their favorite parts are about the business, ask them what they don't like. Go to conferences like RIMS or RISWorld and find ways to learn more and meet people who are doing different things that you want to learn more about. My boss used to tell me 
when I would be approached to speak, they, I would say, what should I speak about? And he's like, what do you want to learn most about? And so that's the topic that I would choose, the one that I wanted to learn most about. That's awesome. Having that thirst for knowledge, I think is key. And then just putting yourself out there. If you want to move up and move on in your company, you have to make that known. You can't just expect somebody to give it to you. So just go out there and get it. <laughs> that's awesome. All right. Thank you so much for your time. And I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. I appreciate it too. Risk Management Brick by Brick is brought to you by TrustLayer. Find out how TrustLayer manages risk so that the people can build the physical world around us. Head over to TrustLayer.io. And then make sure to subscribe to Risk Management Brick by Brick on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. On behalf of the TrustLayer team, thank you for listening. <laughs>